Our topics today include three commissions, pianos, lightning, parents, a stairway, two brothers, a surgeon, a cookout, a PhD, a phone booth, and an out-of-body near-death experience. And then it gets interesting. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh, my life, watching America. Oh, my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Where there is thunder, there is always lightning. Lightning can be lethal, as we all know. One bolt is five times hotter than the surface of the sun and carries a charge of 30,000 amps. Could such a charge hitting a person produce anything positive? Put another way, could a strike of lightning produce a stroke of genius? It has been said that adversity can be a key to unlocking creativity. Well, at least one victim of lightning discovered 88 keys to creativity. The music you hear is Fantasia, the Lightning Sonata, Opus 1, by Dr. Tony Sicoria, a man who was transformed in a flash. I am so happy to have my guest today, our guest, I should say, Dr. Tony Sicoria. Now, I'm happy for two reasons, because his life um, addresses two things that are, are quite fascinating and delightful to me. One is music, and the other one is, well, a near-death experience, sometimes known as an out-of-body experience. Now, wait, 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 don't, don't, don't go anywhere before you consider listening to something else, or even shutting this program off, let me clarify. And I say this with, with reverence and respect. There are some on our fair planet who, as soon as they hear that someone has had a supernatural experience, they go, oh, okay, I know what that's about. You know, somebody, somebody uh, who uh, attends uh, Burning Man festivals and has beads and what have you. Well, yeah, there may be people like that, but this is certainly not the kind of candidate that you would think to fit into this, um, to this form at all. My guest, Dr. Tony Sicoria, holds a BS in biology. Moreover, he has a PhD in physiology and biophysics and also is an MD, uh, serving as an orthopedic surgeon. So he has a degree in medicine as well. He was essentially a scientist, and I think he would argue that he still is, although he did have a supernatural experience. So let me say with a hearty welcome, uh, it is a delight to have you here, Dr. Tony Sicoria. Welcome. Thank you, sir. Nice to be here. You know, uh, one of the descriptions of you, it says uh, behind all, all your other d degrees and, and letters that you have is OBE, uh, which in America stands for out-of-body experience. But, you know, being a Brit, my initial thought was, oh, he's an order of the British Empire. He's been knighted. But, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we use an OBE for in Britain. Um, let's get to, uh, to the big event. It was August the 21st of 1994. And there was a barbecue, and you were, uh, if you will, manning the the uh, the cookout uh, at the barbecue and, and taking care of, of things. Your family and other persons are on a second floor. It uh, sounds like a typical northeastern environment, maybe where you have a upstairs, downstairs, and different housing. And uh, you're outside, and you get the impulse to suddenly call mum. 
at a public phone box attached to the building where you're actually cooking in the back backyard, uh, making the, the food. And things changed. Yes, that's the understatement of the year. Um, I had I went around to the front of the building where the payphone was. I was going to call my mother to check on her. And I dialed the phone and she didn't pick up. As I was getting ready to hang up the phone, I heard this loud crack. This big flash of light came out of the phone and hit me in the face. It threw me back like a rag doll. And I knew instantly what had happened. It it had started to rain and I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but I knew that I'd just been hit by lightning. I was thrown backwards. And as I was going backwards, um, I suddenly had the sensation of moving forwards, which was very confusing. And as I stood there, I'm bewildered and I look at the phone and the phone is dangling And just about then I hear my mother-in-law screaming and she's running down the stairs toward me. And I thought, what the hell is going on? And as she was coming down the stairs, she was looking off to her left. And I'm confused by that as well. And she gets down to the bottom of the stairs and she doesn't even acknowledge that I'm there. She takes off to her left and I, I turned and I start to follow her. And I went a few steps and suddenly I was confronted by my body on the ground. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And as I was standing there looking at the body, I suddenly realized that, oh, crap, I'm dead. I walked over to the body and it turned out there was somebody who was waiting to use the phone with her daughter. And she was starting to go down to start CPR. And I could hear them and see them, but they couldn't see or hear me. And as I'm standing there watching all of this, I, I said to myself, oh, my God, I'm, I'm still thinking exactly the way I normally would. And my mind is racing. And I suddenly realized that whoever I am, I always am. My spirit, which is what I was assuming I was in at that point, was much more than the body that was on the ground. And it, so at that point, I'm, I'm, I've come to the realization that my spirit is forever and what the body that I was in was nothing more than a shell. And I realized that there's no point in me standing here because no one can hear me or see me. I decided to start walking away to go check on my family who's up on the second floor. And as I approach the stairs and I start to go up, I start to see that my legs are dissolving. And I thought, whoa, this is really something. I wasn't expecting that. And then as I got to the top of the stairs, I was without form. My whole body had dissolved and I had just was now a ball of energy. And rather than continuing up the stairs, I went straight through the wall. I came out right above where my wife was sitting and she was taking care of a bunch of kids and she was painting faces and I kept going. I went diagonally through the room. And when I got outside the room, thing the character of everything changed dramatically. Suddenly I felt like I was in a a river of pure positive energy. There was nothing in it but love and absolute peace. I was really struck by it because it was, it was so powerful and palpable. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, this energy is so strong that I could measure this. So, you know, the the scientist in me is going, Oh, this, this ought to be fun to take measurement of this river of pure positive energy is this bluish white light. And it reminded me of, as a child, I I used to swim in, in this little stream. And when I would look up at the sun, it would have this sparkling light beams coming through the water. It reminded me of that. And then as I looked around and I looked at the surroundings, I could see that this energy that I was in 
flowed through everything and made up everything. So there was a severing of the relationship between, at least momentarily, between body and spirit or body and consciousness, if you prefer. So you float to the upstairs. Uh, your wife, unbeknownst uh, to others, uh, is not aware of what has happened to you. She's working with children and, and she was doing, as I understand it, face painting on, on children at the time. When you saw her and the children around her, did you have emotion or did you just have, I guess, again, for, for lack of coming up with a, with a, a variety of terms, astonishment? that you were evidently floating around the ceiling and going through, had gone through a wall. It was interesting that it was very dispassionate. There was, I did not have any particular feelings um, about the fact that I was, I was passing my wife and my kids were all down there. And the only realization that I had was that they would all be fine. And I just continued on my journey. I was moving in this energy flow and it was taking me someplace, but I had no idea where. Um, and I didn't care at that point either because it was the, it was the most astounding feeling that, that I could ever have imagined the, the sense of absolute love. Uh, what happened next? You see this white and blue light. You see this ball of energy. You said something interesting. You said it was as though you realized everything was made from this. When you say everything, do you mean in that realm or in this realm? Or in both? this realm. In this realm. And, and, and what I had noticed was that as I was looking around at the trees and the things that were outside, I could see this energy flowing through it and, and actually could see the lines of the energy that were flowing through everything and made up everything. It was a, it was a strange realization, but it was very clear that whatever this force is, this is the life force. This is the, the thing that makes up everything else. So to rephrase it, your sense was that this, this energy, this flow, was actually responsible for matter as we see it in this world. Everything made of yes. matter, atomically, came yes. from this force. That's what it appeared to be. So now what happened next after, after that experience? So after that, I relaxed in the fact that you know, whatever this force was that was taking me someplace, I was just ecstatic about it. I was excited about where I was going, even though I had no idea. And then suddenly it was like somebody flipped a switch and I was back in my body and and it hurt like hell. And because where the lightning hit me in the face and and came out my foot, it had burned me. And those places hurt like the blazes. I was angry and I, I remembered, you know, praying to whoever would listen and please don't make me come back here. I don't, you know, I want to go on that trip because there's nothing in, in this world like it. You know, I just realized that, okay, that's not mine to, to have. And I'm here and I'm going to be staying here. So as I, as I lay there, I could, I was aware that the lady had stopped CPR. After several minutes, I was able to open my eyes. And at, at that point, I, you know, I was really disoriented. They had called an ambulance and I, I refused transport because I didn't want to go sit in the emergency room for hours. I just wanted to go home. Could you tell us what you said to the lady who was uh, who revived you? I found that amazing and, and funny, very interesting. Do you, uh, oh. you want to share that with the audience? <laughs> you know, I, it was one of my more stupid moments. I and when I woke up, what I wanted to do was to thank her for saving me, but the only thing that came out was, "It's okay, I'm a doctor." And she just kind of <laughs> chuckled and said, "Well, you weren't a moment ago." 
<laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm just going to shut up because I'm not making any sense. Um, before we go any further, I need to remind people who you are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Tony Sicoria, and he is talking about his out-of-body life experience. You recover. You elect not to go to the emergency room because you're a physician. And as I've heard you say elsewhere, I think quite logically you thought, well, if I'm not dead after being struck by lightning, there's probably not a lot that could be done for me other than just to try and heal and go on with my life. So you elect to go home. For a week, you are troubled and amazed by what you've experienced, uh, questioning facets of it. And then at some point, you find this unction, I think would be the appropriate word, to acquire classical piano music. Something formally, although not as though you were unaware of it, but rather alien to your musical taste because you're a child of the 60s and the 70s, and you'd rather listen to Steppenwolf, I presume, and Led Zeppelin, or The Stones, rather than Chopin. Uh, and yet you go and acquire music. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, it was a couple of weeks after the lightning event. It took me a couple of weeks to be able to get back to work. And in that time period, I suddenly had this insatiable desire to hear classical piano music, which was an absolute departure for me because I, I was a kid of the 60s and I didn't have any desire to, to hear classical music or piano music. It was such a strong compulsion that I actually went to a, a store about an hour away because I live way out in the country went to a music store and bought a CD of Vladimir Ashkenazi playing his favorite Chopin. And I was so struck by it. I, I listened to it nonstop and made everyone else listen to it at home and at work. And suddenly came to the realization within that first couple of weeks that it was not going to be enough to listen to this music. I needed to learn how to play it but I didn't know how to play and I didn't have a piano. But the next day, one of our babysitters came by and said, you know, I have to move and I have this old upright piano. I was wondering if I could start at your house for a year till I get settled. And I thought, well, that's fortuitous. Suddenly I, you know, I have this intuition to, to play and suddenly a piano appears. And so I, I went to the music store and I, bought some books on how to learn piano. And I thought, well, I can teach myself this. So I sat down and started to, at the very beginning with these books, trying to teach myself. And I went through a period of a, of a few weeks doing this. And suddenly I, I have a dream one night. And in this dream, it was like an out of body experience. And I, I'm walking out onto a stage toward myself and and my physical self is actually on this stage and I'm playing in a concert hall and I'm playing this music and as I'm walking out toward myself I realize that oh my god this is not somebody else's music this is mine and I walked up and I stood behind myself as I was as I was playing the music and it came to an ending which was this kind of loud crashing ending and it woke me up out of a sound sleep. And I looked at the clock and it's about 3.15 in the morning. And I got up and I, I went out to the piano and I tried to plunk out some of the notes that I was hearing in my head. And I realized that, geez, I don't know how to write music. I don't know how to play music. I'm going back to bed. But what was interesting is from that moment on, whenever I went near the piano or I would just be at work doing one particular thing, the music would start playing in my head from the dream. And it was always exactly the same. And it would play rather insistently. And even when I didn't want to listen to it, it would play anyway. It reminded me of a, of a little two-year-old that wanted some attention that you didn't have time to give it to it. And so I, I continued on this pathway of trying to to learn how to play. And I realized that I couldn't do it myself. And, 
and finally got a teacher, Sandy McCain, her name was. And Sandy was the chairman of the music department at Hartwick College. I told her this whole story and she said she would give it a try and took me on as a student. Periodically, I would, I would, you know, when I, cause she knew about the music that I had, had had in a dream and I would play little sections of it with her and, and I would say, how do I write this down? And so she would give me little, little snippets of instructions in that way. And I would, I would write down little bits and pieces and I would put them on a piece of paper and, and they didn't really have much in the way of form because I didn't know how to write, but the idea was there and I would throw them in a drawer thinking someday I'll go back to this. I want to ask you about the gentleman, Dr. Oliver Sachs, who was a uh, neuroscientist who came into your life. What happened then? Um, I had uh, leading up to Oliver in May of 2006, I had started going to a piano sonata uh, camp. It's an adult piano camp that met um, for a week. Um, and I started going in 2002. And in 2006, uh, when I went, I met the owner's sister, Erica Vanderlyn Feidner. And Erica was a concert pianist, and she had been the number one salesperson for Steinway pianos, and she had just left Steinway and went to Bosendorfer. And at piano camp, she had a bunch of pianos that she had brought in for this special treat. And she and I got talking about the the lightning story and the music, and and she was struck by the by the fact that I was playing music. No pun intended, I presume. Yeah, literally. Um, <laughs> she she was surprised by the things that I was playing because they were much more advanced than somebody that had only been playing for a number of of years, um, and and that was kind of a common theme among the people that had heard me play was that you know and whatever happened. Um, with the lightning, it left you with an ability that it exceeds what you would have been able to accomplish on your own at this point in time. But one of the things that was striking about that meeting was that she said, you know, this story needs to be told, but there's only one person that can do it. And I said, okay, who's that? And she said, Oliver Sacks. And at the time, I didn't really know who Oliver was other than the fact that he had written the book Awakenings. And so, you know, I, I, after her meeting with her and I just kind of went on back to my regular life, several months later, I got a phone call from Oliver Sacks and Oliver said, geez, you know, I, I've been told about this extraordinary event that you had and how it's affected you musically. And I'm interested in this. I have a group of patients that I would like to have you included in. And I was wondering if you'd come down to New York and let me interview you? And I said, sure. So I went in August of 06, I went down to spend a day with Oliver Sacks, which was an incredible treat in and of itself. We spent the entire day talking about all this stuff. And at the end of the day, we're standing in the doorway and saying goodbye. And he says, he looks at me with his piercing eyes. And he says, you know, the music from the dream went through an awful lot of trouble to get here. The least you can do is write it. And I was so taken with that, that when I got home, I immediately went out and bought a program for writing music called Sibelius, which is the equivalent of writing music for dummies. And I started, I took all those pieces of scrap paper that I had written notes on and I had always had an internal control because the music always played the same in my head. And so I started writing the music. And if I wrote, if I wrote something and then played it, or I would have my teacher play it and, you know, she would say, well, that's, you know, what's your, what you're playing and, and what you've written are not the same. And so, you know, I'd have to correct all of that. But this went on for about seven months of nonstop every night 
um, working with it. After seven months, I finished it. And the next year, now it's coming up for May of 2007. And I bring that piece of music to my music camp and I play it for my group. And while I was at the camp, Oliver called again and said, hey, you know, I want to know if it would be okay if I used your story in my book. And I thought, sure, why not? I don't think that's going to hurt anything. Well, the New Yorker article came out in, uh, in, in 2007. How did that change your life? Were you suddenly besieged by media people? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. Um, in, you know, when it came out in Jul- July of 2007, suddenly the phone um, started ringing off the hook. And one of the first ones was my friend Carlton Clay, who was the uh, head of music at State University in New York in Oneonta. Um, and he had asked me if I would teach a class, which I thought was an interesting thing to do. And so I said, sure. Two weeks later, he called and said, you know, it's getting an awful lot of interest. Would you consider playing some of the music for my classes? And I thought, okay, that would be interesting too. And then two weeks after that, he called and says, geez, you know, this is really getting out of hand. I'm getting so many people calling about it. And he said, would you consider doing a concert at the Goodyear Theater, which is a performing arts center? And I said, I have no idea how to prepare for something like that. I don't have the music memorized. I said, I don't think I can do it. And he said, no, it would be fine. Please just do it. So he talked me into it. And, you know, I, I, at that point I was thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? Yes, sleepless nights at that point. And I, you know, I, call, I called my piano teacher and I, I said, Sandy, Jesus, I, I agreed to do this. I said, I realize there's no way in, in the God's green earth that I would ever be ready to do it on my own. Would you consider helping me? And so the end result was... She wound up having to work with me three or four hours a day. Um, you know, we would go up to the, the performing arts center and she taught me how to walk in, how to sit down, how to play, how to, you know, it was like she would go up and sit in the audience and she'd say, I can't hear you. I'm like, oh, Jesus. And then in November of that year, Carlton called me again and said, you know, would you consider letting a movie camera come in and I'm like, geez, this is getting out of hand. He says, you know, it's just, don't, it's not a big deal. And he would always downplay things. Was that the Holy, the Holy gift? Was that the movie, the Holy gift that was made about you? Yes. Okay. And um, he talked me into it and I agreed. And by the time the concert came in January of 2008, There were three movie crews, the BBC One, Granada Media, and German Television. It looked like a circus. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, I somehow I managed to get through it. Yeah, I don't want to laugh at your distress, but I'm just, you know, for anyone who's ever committed to doing something like being in a play and the pressure of learning the lines and, and all of that, it's... It's a, it's a very real type of agony for, for many persons. And let's go to the present. Uh, your music is available, I presume. Um, can one find it on Amazon or, or on Apple Music? Uh, is, is it readily available to people? It is, it's readily available. It's, um, you can get it through Amazon, Apple, or CD Baby was the original um, place that I, I listed it in, but it's since been farmed out to just about every place. So it's available everywhere. Dr. Tony Sicoria, how are you today changed and what do you anticipate for your future years ahead before you go back to that glorious situation which you described as being perfect? Who would want to leave it? I am different than I was before the lightning. Um, Before the lightning, I was absolutely driven and I was involved in, in publishing academic work and I was the chairman of, of meetings and I was very grounded in terms of 
hard sciences and and the lightning changed a lot of things from the standpoint that I realized what was important in life, which is people and feelings. I didn't really appreciate that as much before. And so that my, I, I suppose you could say my consciousness has expanded um, as a result of that. I'm much more aware of of things, you know, what I see in my future is I, I'm in the process of, of writing a book about all this stuff, which is trying to use ancient, um, ancient texts and quantum physics and a number of other things to try to, to look at all of these issues of consciousness and, you know, what is consciousness? How is it that we're all connected and what did I really experience when I crossed over? And is there evidence that would support that, not only in ancient literature, but in theoretical physics that has really come to explain a lot of this stuff? So, you know, that's something I'm working on. And I continue to work on the music as it, the music still keeps coming. Dr. Tony Sicoria. On Watching America, I always hope for an interesting, if you will, mosaic of voices. And you certainly are a, a very uh, distinct voice. And I'm so grateful for you sharing your experience, not only in this realm, but evidently in another realm, uh, with eloquence and honesty and candor. And so it's been a delight, sir, to have been with you for this hour. Before we leave, let me ask you, what music would you like us to go out on? Probably the music that I came in on. Opus One of the Fantasia of Lightning Strike. I can't think of anything better than that. Now we turn our attention to another story about music. In this case, it's my pleasure to welcome Robert and James Freeman to Watching America, or as they prefer on occasion to be called Bob and Jim. Now, they are both scholars and musicians held in high regard by people both in academia and in the realm of music. Their latest CD is entitled The Three Tributes. Now, why is that? Well, they commissioned three works from three different composers, Kevin Putz, Andrea Clearfield, and the late Gunther Schuller. Each piece is a tribute to their parents. We are listening right now to a piece composed by Andrea Clearfield called Romanza for Violin and String Orchestra. Let me give you just a little bit of background on both Robert and James. They both studied piano and theory at Cambridge Longis School. While graduating from Milton Academy, they studied performance during their summers, including locations such as Tanglewood, Blue Hill, and Marlborough. They went on to Harvard, where each graduated with honors following traveling opportunities and fellowships for study in Europe. Now, Robert, or Bob if you prefer, Dr. Freeman, took his PhD in music history at Princeton and then taught for five years before moving to, of all places, MIT, where he made tenure just before moving for 24 years to the directorship of the Eastman School, his parents' alma mater, I might add. And that was followed by two years as president of the New England Conservatory and six years after that as dean of the College of Fine Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Are you getting the idea that these are exceptionally qualified men? Now, his brother James, or Jim, if you like, went straight from Harvard to Swarthmore College, where he taught and conducted for 37 years. He served during that time as the department chair for 16 years and as the Daniel Upperhill Professor of Music. 
1988, he founded Philadelphia's new music group, Orchestra 2001, and directed it until 2015, when he resigned to take on yet another venture, a new ensemble, Chamber Orchestra First Editions, as it is known. It is my utter delight to welcome both Robert and James Freeman to Watching America. We're delighted to be here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, I was uh, impressed by the nature of your family's lineage in history, and it actually goes back, the, the first reference is to um, uh, Harry Freeman, uh, paternal grandfather, f- great-grandfather for you both, and he was born in February uh, 1875 in Birmingham, England, uh, and he had a, a rather interesting uh, uh, story to tell, uh, not to say the least. His family um, were tavern owners, and he was very interested in brass players and um, evidently uh, wanted to pursue such things. But bad times came, as you have alluded to in your own writings, gentlemen. It was uh, rather a la Dickens or Dickensian uh, in as far as they were poor, destitute, his family. And so the option was either to go to prison or to immigrate to Australia. What happened after that? Well, they went on a sailing ship of from Plymouth with five children. They were uh, becalmed in the Bay of Biscay for a month, ran out of food and water. Uh, Three of the children died, buried at sea. But my grandfather and his sister and the parents succeeded in getting to Australia. So he grew up there and became, at age 14, champion cornet player of Australia. (laughs) We don't know how many cornet players there were in Australia in those days. Uh, but Jim can take it from there. He went back to England. Go ahead, Jim. Um, he went back to England um, and he became a, a uh, trumpet player uh, with the Grenadier Guards Band, which was a, a great honor because I think, he, I think the Grenadier Guards Band players had to be at least six feet uh, tall. Mm. Um, and he was only five, eight, I think. And, but still, he was admitted. So he must have been a pretty good uh, trumpet player. But in any case, um, when it came time for his outfit to go to the Boer War, he said, no, thanks, uh, and uh, shipped off to New York City at that point and began a career as a trumpet player in the theaters uh, of New York, which was pretty tough, especially for a new immigrant um, coming in. Uh, Fortunately, spoke good English, of course. In fact, as I remember, he spoke impeccable English like none of us ever does now. Uh, But he soon ran into trouble because he organized a strike against the present union and was soon blackballed. Um, And uh, that that made life very tough for him, his wife, and his three young sons in New York City. And they had a pretty wild childhood. Uh, until they moved to Rochester, and I'll let Bob go on from there. In 1919, George Eastman, who had founded Eastman Kodak, a great American Horatio Alger story, and had anonymously founded uh, MIT, the new campus of MIT on the north banks of the Charles River, um, decided to found in Rochester the Eastman School of Music and the Eastman Theater a wonderful complex for music students to study. Um, it opened in 1921. Our dad and mother were recruited there as students in the fall of 1926. They graduated in 30, married in 32. I was born in 35. Jim was born in 39. And then I re- returned in 72 to direct the institution uh, for 24 years. You've had the two of you highlights and in a familial sense uh, with music uh, permeating not only the relationships in the family, but also obviously your vocations, what you've decided to do. Uh, And in particular for Jim, at the age of 11, you have described being a member of Trinity Church's Boys Choir and standing in the midst of the Boston Symphony Orchestra with Charles Munch uh, conducting and singing the choral tune uh, in the awe-inspiring opening chorus of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, which happens to be one of my favorite bits of music, incidentally. And there was your dad, just a few feet behind you, playing the bass. What was that like? Uh, it was incredible. For me, it was maybe the most formative musical experience of my life. I mean, it was absolutely thrilling, uh, partly because my father was right there, uh, and partly because there was Munch 
actually shouting at the boys. And there were only about nine or 10 of us uh, singing the chorale tune. And at the first rehearsal, he yelled at us, uh, boys, sharp, sharp. He was angry. And I'm sure we were sharp because we we were scared, <laughs> terrified, in fact. But uh, at, by the second rehearsal, I think somebody had told Mooch, you know, that's not going to help the boys. <laughs> you yell at them like that. And so in the second rehearsal, he just blew kisses towards us. And I think the performances were fine as far as I know. He seemed to be happy with them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And my guests, I am happy to report, are Mr. James Freeman and Dr. Robert Freeman. They are both scholars and musicians of high stature who have been held in high regard for decades in in very, very honourable positions of great leadership in the musical world and also in the academic world. Their latest venture is a CD entitled The Three Tributes. They commissioned music in honour of their parents. Let me start with the, uh, the the genesis. How did this come about? How did the idea germinate um, for you to to say, "Wow, brother, let's commission people to compose music in our parents' honor"? Go ahead, Bob. Well, I, I remember Jim suggesting that we make a recording, but he claims he doesn't remember that. Uh, I'm we're not sure of the genesis of this. We just wanted to do something together in memory of our parents, and the idea of making a CD. Uh, grew out of that. Uh, My dear wife and I had commissioned Kevin Putz, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner and an Eastman graduate, was teaching uh, composition at the University of Texas when I arrived in the year 2000. I was always commissioning members of the composition faculty to write new pieces. And I thought we'd commission Kevin to write a a work in memory of our father. the only really well-known 19th century piece uh, that bass players play chamber music in is a wonderful piece by Schubert called the Trout Quintet. And so I proposed to Kevin uh, that he write a companion piece for the Trout Quintet with the same instrumentation, including piano and bass, violin, viol, and cello. Um, And uh, he wanted $20,000, which was a particular, perfectly reasonable fee at the time. My wife and I put 7,500 into it and I used 7,500 from the Dean's budget at UT, which was a perfectly reasonable thing to do for a faculty member. Uh, So I was $5,000 short and I ended up turning uh, to a man named Paul Guido, uh, a UT alumnus, who was the owner of what a lot of people told me was the nicest fish restaurant in the state of Texas, which is really saying something. We have a big coast, as you know. Um, So I took uh, Paul Guido out for lunch and gave him a copy of the recording of the Trout Quintet and said that wonderful composer named Putz was going to write this piece. For $15,000, I got to choose the instrumentation and the composer, but for $5,000, he could choose the fish. He went home, talked with his wife, and called me the next morning to say it's going to be called the Red Snapper Quintet. When you initially heard, gentlemen, this work that you've paid for and commissioned, what was your initial reaction? It starts off... It's the first movement begins and ends uh, with the the four string instruments not playing on a beat, um, uh, but playing harmonics. That's to say very unusually uh, sounding string notes that are produced by not depressing the string, but just touching the string at different points. The strings and the piano uh, play out of sync with each other And I'm suggested that this is uh, life in the depths. Uh, The rest of the piece is easy for your listeners to follow. It begins slowly and softly and gets progressively faster and louder. And having reached a peak, it then progresses to get uh, slower and softer until you get to the point from which the piece had begun in the first place. And you go back to hear the piano the string harmonics. Uh, it's a good way of writing a piece. It's like A, B, C, D, 
CBA. I was thrilled by the piece. It's a great piece. In 2015, the world lost Gunther Schuller, uh, but not before he had the opportunity to do the sonata for two pianos for you. Um, what was that experience like? Oh, it was terrific. Um, uh, Bob and I had decided that we needed another piece, a third piece, to go on our projected CD in memory of our parents. Uh, and we both agreed on, on Gunther because he had been a, a close friend of our parents and a good friend to both of us. And besides, was a spectacularly wonderful and famous composer, American composer. Um, and uh, I think I called Gunther uh, and he agreed right away and wrote the piece. And when we got it, uh, we realized it was actually quite a difficult piece. And it was going to be difficult to rehearse with Bob in Texas and me in Pennsylvania to get together on it. So it took us a while even to do that. But we eventually did. And that's eventually how the recording of the piece happened. It's a hard one. It is a hard one. It is a hard piece. It's a, it was a hard piece to play, and it, of, of the of the three pieces on the on our disc, it, I think it's probably it's the shortest piece by far. I think it's only maybe twelve minutes, but it's also the hardest to listen to. Uh, you really have to listen to this piece several times to get into his language at that particular time. I'd like to talk about the healing capacity of music. Um, uh, certainly, it's it's emotive by by its very form. Um, certain notes, even, can be like a healing balm to the listener. I'm interested in the emotional uh, aspects for the two of you with music growing up. When was the first time, if at all, it has happened, but I I, I assume it may have, that you were moved to tears by a piece of music? Oh, I think the most important emotional experience I can remember uh, in earliest in my life was going to a place called the Greenwood Music Camp, where there were 80 or so teenagers, only half a dozen of whom became a prof professional musicians, but all of whom uh, found music a very important central aspect of their avocational lives. They enjoyed making chamber music and orchestral music and choral music together. And when you do that with a bunch of other kids who are pretty well uh, attuned to that experience when you're 13 years old, it has a very moving effect. I could talk about that question of yours, Alan, forever, actually, because I am fairly often moved to tears by, by particular music. One of the pieces that moves me always... Uh, to tears um, is is a, a song by Mahler called Ich, uh, what is it? Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen. And the, the, the gist of it is that I'm, I'm saying goodbye to yes. the world. The world is over and done. Uh, and I will live my life with music, with my music. Uh, and that that is such an enormously beautiful piece that I, I can't help but bring, have it bring tears to my eyes. Also, I have amazing performance with my wife playing the English horn, which is the prominent part in the piece in which I have to advertise for her a little bit. She plays it so beautifully that that brings tears to my eyes too. But in any case, but one other thing I want to say, the, the first times I remember being having tears brought to my eyes was with my brother's playing. Uh, I used to sit in, fire in front of the fireplace while he would be practicing the piano. I was probably seven or eight, and he was probably nine or 12 or something like that. And I remember two pieces always that just struck me as, holy mackerel, that's, that, is, that is enormous. And I'll tell you the two pieces, Bob. I don't think I've ever told you this. No. One was the slow movement of Mozart uh, K488, uh, which mm -hmm. remains for me a piece that uh, is just beyond comprehension as to how anybody could write such a, such a gorgeous piece. And the other is, was two sections of, of the Brahms B minor Rhapsody, uh, which you used to play a lot and practice a lot. And there were sections of that, the slow sections of that, I thought were just, holy mackerel, this is just amazing. 
So I'm going to go very personal. What are the greatest attributes that you recall the two of you as brothers regarding your parents, um, both your mum and dad? Both our mother and father were dedicated to us as children and as adolescents, particularly to give us the best possible of educations. So Jim and I had during the wintertime really strong academic liberal arts educations of the kind that you could get at a place like Milton Academy or Harvard. Uh, on the other hand, weekends and summer times, we had the very best musical educations that you could have. There aren't a lot of people in the world. We're not unique. Uh, but among musicians, at least during the 20th century, there were not a lot of musicians uh, who had both of those opportunities. Um, yeah, I'll add to that. I agree totally. Uh, our mother was perhaps the most fanatically devoted to music person I've ever known in my life. I mean, she practiced every minute that she could to improve her violin playing and inspired our father to become the great bass player that he was. In their old age, uh, in their house in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, they played court string quartets, uh, Schubert and Beethoven and Mozart, together, just the two of them. Uh, and in their inner ears, they heard the second violin part and the viola part, but that didn't faze them, not having those parts uh, audibly heard, um, except when Bob and I and families occasionally came up to visit them, and then we were obliged to play at least one part on the viola, maybe two parts, second violin and viola together to make it work. Um, and an interesting story, it tells you something about my mother. Uh, of course, my wife came with me, the oboe player, uh, and brought her oboe. And every once in a very, very, very great while, my mother would ask her if she'd like to play one of the first violin parts. <laughs> and that was very rare because she wanted to play the first violin parts always. <laughs> but in any case, she was she was the driving force in the music. Uh, my father was became a great player, largely, I think, because of her. You know, and, and to the end of her life, she would begin each morning. There were two things she had to do, I remember, each morning. She'd ha have to practice her violin in her 80s, Bach and Sevchik and Kreutzer, for at least an hour, usually two hours, and then she'd have to vacuum the whole house. <laughs> It has been a delight, Robert and James Freeman, to hear you talk not only lovingly about music and fellow composers and uh, musicians, but also about your parents. And we thank you so much for honoring us with your attention and time and recall of some very treasured memories, and then, if you will, transformed into musical delight. Thank you both so very much. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Alan. It was a pleasure. The music commissioned by the Freeman Brothers is available on CD and is entitled The Three Tributes. And earlier in the program, you will recall that we spoke with Tony Sicoria. His Lightning Sonata and other works can be discovered at multiple sites online. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.